Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic, and welcome back to Dune Month, in which we're going to bury you in the sands of Dune content. Uh, I'm back with uh, <laughs> my loyal my loyal Duncan Idaho, Pete, uh, and <laughs> no, Pete's better. Pete's Pete's higher in the higher in the order than that. He's probably the Duke, and I'm the I'm the Duncan Idaho. Anyway, uh, we're here with a very special guest. We are honored with the presence of someone that I know is a fan of the show and also a very accomplished writer. Uh, he is, among other things, a novelist who's written two novels. The first is called The Bend of the World. The second is called The Doorposts of Your House and On Your Gates. He is Jacob Bacharach. Welcome, man. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we are honored by your presence, um, and we're stoked that you wanted to talk to you. And so I'm going to kick it over to Pete to start interrogating you about all that. Yeah, like, let's let's talk about that. Uh very early on, and I've got to tell you, it was incredibly validating that you listened to us that early on. Um, you brought up the idea that you wanted to go on our show to talk about Dune. And so thank you for that. But but why? What what makes this book special and important to you? Um, well, so first I will say that I was just excited that anybody was going to start a sort of narrative arts podcast that actually talked about uh, science fiction. Uh because that seemed to be a uh, empty space in the um, podcast universe. There are a lot of there are a lot of science fiction podcasts, but they they tend to be um, I don't know very um, fanboyish and not as interested in science fiction as a uh, a serious part of the the narrative and literary arts. So I was just glad that um, somebody was going to try to bite into that uh, uh, delicious pastry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, for me, uh, I've, I've always, Dune was one of my entrees into science fiction and, and science fiction was one of my entrees into, into interest in, um, writing and literature. Um, really as probably even before I was a teenager, probably by the time I was like 10 or 11 years old, my, my dad, uh, was pushing, Asimov and Vonnegut, and a little bit later uh, in my early teens, Frank Herbert on me um, as uh, things that I would probably enjoy. And of course, um, all of that classic, you know, 50s, 60s uh, sci fi um, has a sort of uh, boy's own adventure quality to it. So it's a great thing to read as a young teenager, but then also a great thing to keep coming back to because I think there's a lot more. Uh, to discover there. Um, and Dune and uh, the sequels to Dune, at least the ones that were actually written by Frank Herbert, um, have just always been a really interesting touchstone in my life. The source of um, uh, both a great amusement when I was younger, because uh, everybody wants to be Paul Atreides, and then a source of sort of 
um, embarrassed fascination later on as I thought about both the sort of, I still think kind of remarkable achievement of Frank Herbert in creating this um, fictive universe, but also the very strange failings and weird politics uh, of Dune and of Frank Herbert. So I just think he's such a fascinating character and it's such a, a fascinating piece of kind of mid 20th century literature, especially through the the lens of our current political moment that I, I always want to talk about it. Cool. Well, that's a very eloquent answer. Uh, I think that's our episode, folks. We're going to wrap it up there. Um, <laughs> no, that was that was great. Um, I have so many questions. Uh, you know, I think we might have to circle back to uh, Dune itself, but like, I am very curious. Uh, you know, I've said science fiction was sort of part of your entree to just being interested in the novel form and being interested in writing. Um, you know, as someone who's written things that are classified as literary fiction, of course, we've talked a lot about the very tortured nature of the boundaries between genres and, and how they're marketing categories and all of that. But like, you know, w- when you're looking at something that we've sort of discussed as we, we say Dune is like a novel that announces this is a genre novel on every page, which in many ways um, prevents it from being like it, it kind of means that Herbert has resisted the crossover categorization that some classic uh, genre fiction writers get, like Le Guin is now being anointed as a literary figure, but Herbert kind of hasn't. Um, so as a, as a more literary fiction writer, sorry, this is a complicated, convoluted question. I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> how does a book like this uh, have an ongoing relationship to your own work? Oh, that's, I, that's a great question. Uh, well, so, uh, so part of the answer is that um, I, one thing that I think Herbert actually w- was um, really interested in as a writer in a way that I, I don't think that, um, a literary as sort of, when I say literary fiction, I'm, I'm sort of mean the sort of genre literary fiction within the sort of Anglo American context, because I think outside of that context, that even becomes a, a, a even more problematic term. But uh, one thing that I think it's been historically really, really bad about dealing with, and frankly, in many ways, uninterested in dealing with, um, is political economy, right? And I think that um, what Herbert does that uh, was very interesting, especially, and many other science fiction writers did, uh, even in the mid-century, was they they really used um, the narrative form that they were working in as a way to think um, about power, um, about economy, about uh, the distribution of resources in society and about the sort of um, construction of society as a set of nested hierarchies. Um, And you find that uh, in in Herbert, you certainly find that in Asimov and anybody who's writing sort of quote-unquote future histories, I think, in particular. Um, And so um, so for me, as a a literary writer um, who uh, employs elements of science fiction, but I think maybe more pertinently, um, is very interested in political economy within the context of the narratives that I'm I'm writing. Um, that that science fiction uh, was a very early exposure to thinking through some of those issues in uh, in a character driven narrative form. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. It's actually really interesting and something that I don't think we had talked about uh, the ecology. And the sort of Byzantine feudal politics, um, you know, when we did our sort of first jam session about Dune, just get our takes out. But I, I think I love that you're going to political economy. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that Herbert 
deserves a huge amount of credit for is just his incredible capacious curiosity about all the factors that would go into creating this world. And that's probably one of the main reasons why this work has endured is because he did his homework over the course of his life. This wasn't like an early work for him. And he, um, yeah, he's able to sort of fully imagine how this would actually operate. And so the shares in the, I don't mispronouncing this, the Chome company or whatever are, uh, so crucial to the story. Um, sorry, this is not really couched as a question, but you're just, you're making, you're making me think of a lot of interesting things here. Um, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so, but even the, even the ecology stuff. So, so let me go back. First of all, what's interesting about, um, uh, Herbert's uh, future history is in a very, very explicit way. Um, it is a scarcity economy, right? I mean, it's obviously a scarcity economy um, on the planet of Arrakis Dune because um, the the resource that is scarce is water. And water is explicitly discussed in terms of wealth within both the sort of imperial society that sits atop that planet as well as with the indigenous Fremen society. So, that, so that's obviously uh, an example of a sort of non-post-scarcity or scarcity future. But the entire um, universe that he creates is driven by, by economics. You mentioned the sort of, yeah, the, the um, chome, which is the sort of um, uh, trading conglomerate between all of the noble houses, but even the sort of central item uh, of the story, that in, in a way, it's sort of MacGuffin, which is the spice, um, is itself um, incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. And the fact that its rareness and, the, and that it cannot be synthetically reproduced, at least until much later in the sequels, um, means that everything in the book is about the acquisition of, of wealth and about the way that wealth and holding wealth is a precursor to the acquisition of political power. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a moment I, to think I, about that. The, the process that there's just so much, this is great. Cause you've clearly been digesting these dune takes for a long time. Um, I, I'm curious to ask my co-host here. Cause I know that obviously Pete knows way more about sci-fi than I do. And, uh, you also Pete know more about finance and economics than I do. And I think I'd like to hear your, your response to all of this. Cause like, this is this is more your guys' realm than mine. Well, it's talking about this has has sort of opened a couple of doors in my head. So, like one of the things that I was really interested in walking into this was the relationship. Like I, I knew uh, Jacob that this was a, a book you really liked, but when you mentioned the your other uh, the, the other science fiction that sort of got you started, and I was thinking about this book in relationship to Bend of the World, Bend of the World. Um, is, well, I don't want to say unreliable narrator, but there's this, there's a real question about what's actually going on. And when you're looking at, say, Dune, uh, the, the, the world is laid out before you and you literally have a God's eye view of what's going on. You're reaching into people's heads. You're getting these things. But I, um, oh my God, where am I going with this? I just climbed up a tree. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> so with, What's what's really interesting about this to me is that um, there's a, uh, I guess you'd call it hero fragility. There's a certain uh, helplessness in the face of what's going on. And I'd never really thought about Dune in those terms. But at the end of the day, it is, there's a, there's a lot going on here about like distrust of heroes and distrust of individuals to solve your problems. 
And a big part of that is the sweeping economic system. There's a genetic inevitability that I find really uh, uncomfortable. But a lot of it is about uh, individual choices don't matter. And oh, I just would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and, and in fact, that's really, I think, um, what Herbert was trying to do with the entire um, prescience narrative. Now, he, he ended up kind of going down a very, like, w- weird path. And, and, and we can maybe talk about his uh, extremely um, strange metaphysics and his even stranger and more problematic gender politics later on. I mean, the, the yeah. whole thing about, you know, like <laughs> o- only, only the, the male care, the, the sort of male seer is strong enough to sort of like truly look f- f- both fully into the past and fully into the future, you know, into the dark place that women cannot go and all of that. We, we, we can, we can maybe put a pin in that and come back to it. But, but the, the the whole prescience narrative, the whole idea of uh, this um, first hero who then becomes anti-hero and then in effect becomes villain before in, in like the third sequel getting a, a, a semi um, uh, rehabilitation um, mm-hmm. is is that the prescience is kind of a, a metaphor for historical forces, right? And so the the prophet it, it cannot actually move history. All, all he can do is see a future path, but he is in fact trapped by it. You know, in a in an almost sort of like um, you know Marxian way. There there are these um, hi- historical forces that dictate the the movement of people on an immense scale so individuals might be able to make individual choices but societies cannot um in an interesting way i think that it it presents a really kind of um neat parallel a sort of more spiritualized parallel to what asimov did when he came up with um psychohistory in um the foundation series which was you know sort of like um a, a sufficiently um, advanced calculative mind could basically tell you what was going to happen in the future, just couldn't tell you what was going to happen to any one individual. Um, and uh, you see interesting echoes of that, I think, um, in the idea of Paul Atreides as a prophet, because he explicitly says, I think especially in the in the second book, you know, he sort of becomes locked into his own vision and he's tried in every way that he can think about to um, avoid this jihad that kills trillions and trillions of people, and um, it becomes a sort of uh, religious totalitarianism. And in the end, he simply cannot. He can only see it unfold and then uh, unfold with it. So, so thinking of Dune is like a great, um, in some ways, I don't know if it's unique, but it, it it comes close in my experience to being unique as far as being a very clear, um, to the point of being you know, deeply generic, uh, chosen one narrative that we talk about all the time and also being this great sort of deeply thought out, uh, you know, parable of systems and power arrayed across systems. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is really, that's a neat take. And like my mind is spiraling off. I feel like I'm on the space, the spice right now. Cause we, uh, (laughs) you're, you're, you're making my brain glow here. Um, it's, (laughs) I'm trying to be a third level guild navigator in this conversation. (laughs) I I think you're nailing it. Honestly, this is, this is great. And it's like elevating this conversation to a level that like, I'm just like, wow, that just just makes me think. Um, I go ahead, Pete. Sorry. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I do have something to, to give you time to get ready because I have a rare opportunity here. I'm, I'm talking to two authors that I like. And uh, when, when I get to the end of the first book 
and I see the way things unfold, um, it reminds me of a lot of of Shakespeare's Pierce, where they sort of get to the end and it's like, okay, we've got a bit of a mess now, so let's bring the wizard out. And we're going to have these two people get married and we're going to have these people have a duel and this guy's going to turn on him and we're done. Everybody clap. Okay, leave, leave. That's the way the end of Dune feels to me is like there were all of these separate threads and Frank Herbert had to like figure out what to do. So he just like did it right in front of you. Am I looking at that wrong? Because it really didn't. Like, the rest of the novel seems to do this slow build, and at the end, it just feels like he's strangling it, trying to get it to where he wants it to go. I, I've, always, uh, I, I've always thought that uh, the, the ending of Dune is, of the, of the first one, of, of the Dune, is um, w- one of the most sort of, like, um, hysterical failures of uh, a work that that, <laughs> that I otherwise really enjoy for exactly that reason because you're right it, it's it um uh it's not it's not Shakespearean it's like some other third rate Elizabethan trying to do um Shakespeare and you know even I think the final line of the novel you know like um whatever you know history will call us wives or whatever you know um it's just it's just it's just it's just absolutely painful you know it's like uh you know you sort of just like uh, imagine uh i i don't know like the, whoever wove the like bayou tapestry spending all that time and then getting to the end and then just like making a little smiley face in the bottom right hand <laughs> corner and that's the conclusion of this otherwise like magisterial work um and <laughs> um and, and in some ways i think that the it, you know uh, I think that the commonly accepted um, uh, history is that Herbert always intended to um, to write this as a series uh, and that the subsequent two novels were always sort of an intentional part of an intentionally imagined trilogy, um, sort of along the lines of like a um, of like a Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think that that is absolute bullshit. I think that Herbert, um, wrote a novel intended to be a standalone novel. Then he got to the ending and he didn't really know what to do. And he sort of rushed it to its conclusion. And then subsequently thought about going back to sort of rethink some of the things that he wound up in this kind of absurdly pat way at the end of the first novel. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Jacob has the absolute right reading. I'll just add that like, to me, that is a prime example of what I mean when I say that this novel declares its genre-ness over and over again in a way that a lot of <laughs> a lot of the most classic sci-fi that we've looked at at least and again this is golden age and we haven't done um you know we haven't done as much any Asimov or Heinlein so I actually don't know as much about those guys to be frank but like oh I'm itching to make you do Heinlein man that's gonna be a dark day <laughs> yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be a funny one for me we're just gonna sit there and, and just like with a red pen go through the book page by page I'm sure yeah you, you gotta you gotta do the one where he goes back in time and fucks his own mother oh, oh yeah, god absolutely oh man <laughs> Yeah, a little, little bit of psychology going on there, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Jacob nailed it. It's basically just that, like, you know, what is so, I think what is so essential to, to Dune's enduring appeal and so interesting to me is that 
it is inescapably genre in many of the worst ways. Even just page by page, the extremely ham-fisted, repetitive exposition of what characters want, what they're going to do, um, and the, the ending being a great, great example of all of that coalescing. And at the same time, it has sort of a deeper... It, the set of ideas that are animating it remains sort of strange, bewitching, and uh, you know, worth... Sort of retain their, their suppleness if you want to sort of... Um, play with them and think about them in this very, I keep using the word uncanny way, um, as if as if this guy did just have like some, you know, I, I'm going to pronounce this, he had some like, you know, uh, hallucinogenic vision and that, that rendered this, but he'd only write it the way that he wrote, you know? Yeah, there's a great, there's a great essay um, actually about, um, about fantasy uh, genre, um, but it's by China Mieville and he's, and it's about, it's, it's China Mieville talking about um, Tolkien and he, there's a great line in it where he's talking about um, Tolkien's uh, prose style, and he says, it, I, "I think, I think he says it's like uh, Wagner without the music." Um, which, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> which, which is which is a which is a perfect um, a perfect uh, take on the sort of w- weird sort of like um, a cod epic style of of Tolkien, and I've always thought there's there's got to be some sort of equivalent of that for. Um, for Herbert, I mean, he's his his style is obviously much more contemporary. It's not it's not so self consciously like um, anachronistic as as like a fantasy writer in in the in the Tolkienian fashion. But you know the the way that he writes, the way that he um, liberally um, mixes in very very poorly understood um, Arabic and Semitic language cues. There's a certain like almost like a biblical quality in certain places where you can see him striving for that. But then in other places, it's almost more like a fairy tale. I mean, like right at the beginning, for instance, like when the um, Reverend mother first comes to visit the young Paul and it's like the old crone, you know, knocked at the door. And it's like, is, what is this Hans Christian Andersen? Like it's, it, it's just such a <laughs> wild mishmash. Um, but that's one of the things I always sort of liked about it, that it was just like this guy had a bunch of ideas and he, he threw them all onto the page um, and didn't really care too much about polishing out the the prose. He just wanted to st- stuff it all in there, and and it holds together remarkably well for being such a hodgepodge. I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. Um, I I want to actually ratchet down the intellectual level of the discussion and just ask you <laughs> some uh, some fanboy questions. Like, for instance, uh, who is your and you, you can say Paul, but who is your favorite character in Dune? Uh, who, ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, no, my my favorite character in Dune um, is uh, has has got to be uh, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen because yes, um, you know. <laughs> Talk about, I mean, like here we can maybe get into the, some of Herbert's more problematic qualities, um, but the the just fat, sensualist, like, pederastic, gay villain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, he's just, so, he's so over the top, but how can you not just l- love him as he just, like, chortles and is evil? It's like, as I've said before, like, the only thing that's actually redeemable about the... Um, three um about the three star wars um prequels that that lucas did is just how like gleefully evil the emperor is that's the only fun part about it and like in dune the baron is just so 
fun. Everything about him is fun. So uh, like on a fanboy level, that is my favorite character. I think that's a great answer just because like I, he is, he's doing something that you are advised now, I think in any narrative arts medium, absolutely not to do, which is to have a villain who on every single page says, I am evil and I'm enjoying being evil. You know, like, um, like totally unapologetically. I think that's a fantastic reading. Yeah. But um, wait, let me, let me, let me, let me add on to that. Cause this is where I think it, I, I know we're, we're getting down, we're getting away from highfalutin politics stuff, but I, I, I do think so. If you want to think about like, um, uh, the relationship of this book to contemporary politics, obviously the environmental stuff is, is, is forefront, but you know, like in, in a world where, um, where, uh, Jeffrey Epstein exists and, uh, every important financier and celebrity and politico in America has flown on an airplane called the Lolita Express to a private sex dungeon island. I, I think that we have to go back to the sort of character, the, the idea of the sort of um, uh, decadent sensualist uh, villain who um, simply by dint of the fact that he's an aristocrat kind of can get away with it and sort of rethink whether that character is in fact as problematic or as uh, unrealistic as we may have imagined in uh, yeah, in Maybe the past. we're just stupid. Yeah, I, I think this is dead on. Like, all of this stuff might just be happening. Like, Yeah, that's I, a I'm, great read. I'm beginning to re- reevaluate Q. At, well, not, not the facts of Q, but the feeling of Q. That the idea, like, that there's this vast conspiracy connecting all of these rich, horrible assholes is making more and more sense to me, frankly. Yeah, at least some of them are clearly connected. There's no, there's no question about that. And, like... I, I mean, this is such a rich vein to mine. It's like we've had at least 20 years, if not 40 years of like, I would, I would fast on to the Sopranos. Like Sopranos is like, you have to completely, and in that case, literally psychologize a bad person and, and, and think of them in the context of being a family man and all of their mundane struggles. And that's like sort of the apex of it. And I feel like TV in particular, which is of course the dominant narrative arts medium now, uh, is really cannot get past that. And what you're saying is like, yeah, like we used to have these models of like, like especially for instance in left wing arts and discourse of the just incredibly the the unbelievably decadently evil rich person and we could do with more of that in our in our narrative that's a great great thought all right so what so more fanboy questions though what what else <laughs> what, what other <laughs> well, yeah, I, I guess I'm just thinking like I, I think of Dune so one of the things that I find very interesting about Dune as a writer it's a space opera about space empire and there's plenty of action but Frank Herbert at least in the first one he really does not like to write battle scenes he basically just says and then a battle happened and now my characters get together, get together and talk more which is an impulse that I find fascinating because that's <laughs> often not what um, you know genre epics want to do and I, so I'm just thinking about that. So one that one effect that that has is this book does become sort of a series of set pieces that can be thought of somewhat independently. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what are some of your favorite scenes and moments throughout Dune? Um, well, maybe that, I will say that that's an interesting observation, and in some ways goes goes to back to um, Pete's point about the um, the sort of stagey nature of the ending, but the the fact that um, that Dune really is basically just like a, for the most part, a series of dialogues and colloquies means that I, I always thought that it was the only piece of golden age sci-fi that you could actually effectively turn into a stage play. Maybe one day if I'm really bored, I'm, I'll, I'll do that. Um, but um, I, I think that 
it's, uh, I think golden age sci-fi in a lot of ways tended to be talky. I mean, you said, you know, you haven't done a lot of reading of like Asimov, for example, but like, while there are some, uh, zippy battle scenes in Asimov, that also is kind of, um, if you think about, uh, uh, like a film medium, it's like the, the sort of classic, you know, monster movie or whatever, where it's mostly just like white coat scientists in a lab looking at dials and talking about stuff. And then there's maybe like one scene where the monster appears. So I kind of think that that's something that you see, um, here in, in Dune as, as well. Um, and in fact, I even think that Herbert went out of his way to, it's not just that he didn't like to write battle scenes or that he, that he that he actually constructed a universe in which they really can't occur. You know, it's a universe where a, a, a certain type of technological development has basically obviated the use of projectile weapons for the most part, certainly of like, um, of, you know, lasers where there's a sort of convention against the use of atomic weapons and a convention against any type of planetary bombardment from space. So even though it's this vastly future society, it has this sort of um, relatively um, primitive uh, type of combat, you know, sort of pre-modern type of combat. It's non-mechanized, and that means that it's largely sort of a, a dualist society. And what that means is that you know you have to think about its its um, politics almost as sort of like pre-modern, like the pre-modern Italian peninsula, where you had these like conditieri riding around and having little battles but for the most part it was all about like diplomacy and bribery and chit chat between um these sort of interconnected nobles who ruled over their little um fiefdoms and kingdoms and duchies and and so forth well that's a, another really great take wow um absolutely cool. do you have like do you have like a favorite like scene though in dune specifically like of the all the you know somewhat somewhat forced encounters and stuff that happened <laughs> well um i mean uh in in one of the sequel i mean in in uh in god emperor there's a really um great scene where a warrior woman has an orgasm because she watches a far future um gola duncan idaho climb up a wall and so I've, i mean that's like the classic worst scene in all of <laughs> In all of Frank, <laughs> in, in all of Frank Herbert, um, but uh, I'm going to confine myself to I'll confine myself to the first book. Do I have a favorite scene? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, one of the really interesting scenes is actually the first time that um, that Paul rides the sandworm. Because so he's already become basically the leader and the military leader of the Fremen. He's um, he hasn't yet fully um, realized his prophetic potential, but he he's clearly on his way. He's a respected battle leader, um, but then he has never done what any uh, Fremen like teenage boy is taught to do, which is to harness and ride the giant sandworm of Arrakis. So it's this it's this um, pivotal moment. Um, and he does it um, successfully, um, and then he he has this sort of triumphant feeling, and then and then Stilgar, who's the leader of the Fremen band or or tribe that Paul is kind of most closely affiliated with, um, basically says, um, "Wipe that smirk off your face, you shithead! Any any one of our like thirteen year old boys could have done that a million times better than you." Um, and uh, Paul is at first. Um, 
angry to be corrected. And then he has this sort of moment of realization uh, about his own fallibility. And whether intentional or not, and I tend to think it's sort of more of a happy accident than a real intention on the part of Herbert, that's an interesting moment that presages um, sort of future um, weak, hubris-driven weaknesses in the character of Paul that eventually lead in the in the second um, uh, novel, uh, Dune Messiah, to his to his kind of downfall. Oh, yeah, that's that is actually that might be one of like uh, the best. Definitely, it's one of the best crafted scenes in the whole novel, if not the most. So, I'm totally with you there. Um, I I want to talk a little bit about the environmental ecological aspects of this novel. Um, which I'm sure will come up over and over again. I think, like, what does it feel like... When this book came out, one of the more prophetic things about Herbert is that he did dedicate this to, like, future planetary ecologists. And he was thinking rather grandiosely and in a self-serving way about, like, this, you know, this could be a text that will be read as part of the mythos far into the future when people are engineering terraforming planets. And, of course, in the middle of the space age, 1965, he was probably thinking optimistic terms of, like, yeah, we're going to go forth and plant corn on the moon or whatever. But um, now, now, now we're in a moment where we realize we're coming to terms with the fact that, like, look, if we're going to continue having advanced human civilization uh, or just a planet in general, we're going to have to do something to engineer our environment, uh, which we already have done for the worse with carbon emissions, et cetera. Um, I mean, how do you feel about how all of that, you know, sort of functions now and how you think about Dune? Hmm. Um, well, you know, he, Herbert says, I think he, I think this, he puts this in the, in the mouth of, um, of Kynes, who is the planetary, the emperor's planetary ecologist, but, um, or it might've even been in his, in the, in the mouth of his, of his father, who sort of appears in flashback, um, in the book and who was kind of the original imperial ecologist on Dune. But they, they talk about, um, uh, they talk about climatic systems and about planetary ecology as just a system of, of uh, energy inputs. Um, and I, I actually think that that's a very interesting and sophisticated um, mm-hmm. way to think about uh, about ecology and about climate um, in general, because because that is in fact true. It's, it's it's basically like there there are really only a few inputs into the system, and those are primarily like. Um, uh, light and heat from the sun, um, and uh, the moon's gravity affecting the tides, um, and then everything else is just about the sort of capturing of those um, energy inputs in different ways. You know, even you know, global warming is—it's not like the sun is getting hotter. I think maybe some Republican congressman said that was the case, but it's like, <laughs> n- n- no, it's just actually about um, a different about the fact that more of that energy is sort of being sequestered in the atmosphere because of the chemical composition of the atmosphere. But it's still ultimately about these sort of energy inputs. And I think that Herbert was very—it was very sophisticated about about that in a way that. Un- that at least until you got to people like Kim Stanley Robinson or whatever, it, writing much, much later on, I think that sort of like early ideas about terraforming were basically like, um, well, we're going to arrive on a planet that's basically going to be like the classic Star Wars M-class planet that already is alive and has p- stuff on it, and maybe we'll introduce some crops. Um, and I think that Her- Herbert was one of the first to really actually think about like, okay, this planet is inhabitable s- sort of, but barely, you know, it's barely capable of sustaining human life and making it truly capable of sustaining human life is a work of intense energy and of extremely long duration. Um, 
And that always was very fascinating to me because it lacks, it, he, he wasn't like a gee whiz. There was no like um, Genesis device or whatever. It was like, no, you, you got to get there. You got to slowly get the moisture out of the atmosphere. You've got to slowly plant things to keep ro- the dunes from eroding, you know, and, and so forth and so on. Um, and I think that the lesson for us maybe is that, you know, I, I, I think that we think both about our own, own impact on, on the planet and about the, about human driven climate change, as well as about our ultimate reaction to that on very, very small timescales. And I think that our inability to plan on multi-generational timescales because of the, because of our political economy, um, is more than anything, the <laughs> probably nail in the coffin <laughs> of our advanced civilization. <laughs> that's well, a cheery thought. Well, that's a, that's a bummer. Yeah, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's that's a great, very eloquent, um, intelligent way to look at it. Once again, uh, I want to ask you, like, what other? Um, we we don't have to leave Dune. I'm just curious, like, what uh, what other science fiction? You mentioned Asimov. Um, what other science fiction, whether on screen or on the page, has been really important to you? Mm, well, b- before I answer that, I think Pete was going to say something about that last about that last. Oh, point. sorry, yeah, didn't hear. No, him. that's oh, okay. Look at that being rescued by the guest here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one of the things that really struck me in this book, and it sounds like it resonated with you as well, is that the imperial uh, uh, planetologist uh, Liet seems. It, I really get the feeling that he was supposed to be the main character at some point because there there's all of these points where he seems to be speaking for the author author. It's like there was a prequel that was written that was about him. And then it got I mean, is this making sense at all? Because it really struck me in my last read that his role feels like it was much larger and it got scaled back. Okay, so I in. I 100% agree with you, and I have always had this sort of theory that Herbert originally imagined that he was going to write this sort of. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make another Star Trek reference because I can't help myself, but that this <laughs> that this book was gonna be the um, the Below Decks episode, right? Where uh, which is a famous. Um, a Star Trek Next Generation episode that is that is um, actually one of the greats, and it's really interesting because it's told from the perspective of the sort of like low-ranking rank-and-file um, crew who work on the Starship Enterprise, and it it t- recenters the narrative, and you see all of your kind of like heroes, the Picard and Riker and the Doctor and Geordi and all of these people, um, not as your like. Um, your friends and your um, viewer stand-ins, but rather as these almost godlike figures who are who are kind of making history while you know you yourself are tightening bolts down in the engine room. And so I have this idea, just as as you were kind of alluding to, Pete, that um, that uh, Liette and maybe a few of the other characters, the sort of smaller characters, including possibly Duncan Idaho, um, were really intended to be the sort of protagonist characters and the reader stand-ins in the novel, and that the goings-on in the Imperial Court and with Paul and with the B'nai Gesserit and the Spacing Guild and all of that was was kind of supposed to be the sort of vast movement of history that was drawing these these more minor characters along in its wake. And I think that Herbert chickened out because he knew he had to sell this <laughs> shit to the, to the sci-fi rags of the time and, and decided that 
he had to have the character that you had to have in every science fiction novel of that time, and that was Paul Atreides. It was the young boy, because that was who was going to be reading your book, who becomes the hero through his special powers that he and only he and um, you, the uh, pimply 13-year-old reading it with a flashlight under the covers in your room, also have. So I, I totally agree with you on that point. Awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's, I, I, that's, you know, that, that might be the most like resounding confirmation of one of, of one of Pete's alternate uh, history of, of a book theories that I, that I that's great. Um, that's, and, and it sounds like there's, a, there's arguably a more interesting version of Dune that didn't, that didn't happen uh, potentially, which like, yeah, that's, that's, wow. That's a, has anyone done the thing? Maybe the copyrights don't work for this. Has anyone done the thing of like rewriting dude from somebody else's point of view that happens with canonical novels? Cause like that would be an interesting one. <laughs> uh, like I, straight up Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I, I don't think that that, um, I don't think that that has ever happened. Although in, in an interesting way, Herbert kind of tries to do that um, in the later novels. So in the last two novels of this, that Herbert wrote in the Dune series, both of them are told, the, the protagonists are the B'nai Gesserit, who occupy a sort of weird, ambiguous place um, somewhere between villain and foil over the, the first four uh, novels. Um, and while that is not the same thing as like totally recentering the an extant narrative and telling it from a different perspective, um, it, it does do some interesting things with his imagined future. Now, of course, again, the fact that Frank Herbert like cannot write a woman and his ideas about female sexuality are just so incredibly weird and strange <laughs> it, it, it never really co- it never really coheres but it's still it's still an interesting thing because he, he really does sort of recenter how where power lies in the future and he, and he sort of imagines the sort of future survival of of humanity thousands of years after the original dune narrative which was thousands of years after our own time as being this sort of um Maternal and, and matrilineal society as being the only um, the only sort of mature society, um, and and that's an interesting idea. He just he just I think lacked the capacity to really um, you know like to really think it out. You know, like um, it would have been really interesting to just like like hire Ursula Le Guin to like write the Bene Gesserit novel. Like <laughs> that would be interesting. Oh, oh man, Le Guin's take on this universe that would be amazing. That's a great point. Wow. Um, I'm really sad we missed out on that. Actually, jeez, um, gosh, this is so this is so good. So, like, I, uh, Pete, do you want to ask more questions about Dune? Because otherwise, I'm just going to jump to asking uh, Jake about his own career in other sci-fi. But like, I, 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 I I'm tapped out because it's such a great discussion. I'm like, woo, you know. That's honestly, I sort of, I, I want to take some time to think about what we've talked about, and if I were listening to this podcast, I would too. So, I think it's a good time to go in that direction. Cool. Well, I'm, yeah. So, I mean, out of curiosity, like what other sci-fi aside from Asimov, or you can talk more about that if you want. I'm just curious what other stuff has really influenced you. Um, well, so, I mean, I, like I said, I read, um, I voraciously read Golden Age sci-fi. That was, you know, that was the sci-fi that my, um, my dad, who was born in the, in the 50s, um, read when he was growing up um, in the, in the mid 50s into the 60s. That was like what he introduced 
to me um, as a uh, as a young kid, um, and so um, so I always have had a real affection um, for that for that era um, of science fiction. Um, uh, m- lately, uh, I've been reading a lot more of, I guess, the kind of, I, I'd split it into sort of two categories. I would say um, the sort of brainy and thoughtful, uh, hard science fiction. Um, I've really been enjoying um, Kim Stanley Robinson's um, recent output. Um, he's a super interesting guy. And um, the way that he thinks actually about um, environment and ecosystems and um, the fragility of human environments and of built uh, as well as non-built ecosystems is, is super interesting. Um, he also is actually a pretty elegant prose stylist, which is, um, which is nice. Um, I, uh, I've been reading, uh, I've really enjoyed, um, Jeff Vandermeer. He's an interesting crossover who's now, you know, got a lot of, um, uh, literary cred, I guess, after the Annihilation trilogy. But I, I think that's, that's a super interesting series. Although, um, I think that Annihilation, the one that was also made into the movie is actually the least interesting book in that series because the two subsequent books in the trilogy are, um, uh, what I would call bureaucratic science fiction, where they sort of um, move away from the sort of weirdness and otherworldliness of um, uh, of annihilation and think more about the sort of um, government official response and the way that bureaucracy responds to the unknown and the impenetrable. Um, so I've I've been enjoying uh, that quite a lot, um, and uh, I have been. Um, uh, after having long neglected her work, um, I have been reading um, uh, Octavia Butler, um, who is super interesting. Um, in particular, uh, I was reading the um, the Xenogenesis uh, or Xenogenesis. I'm not sure how it would it should be pronounced. Um, yeah, series, it's, it's which the is, problem with being a reader. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it it uh, it took me well and in, well into my late teenage years before I actually knew how to say the word hyperbole. Um, um, but, uh, so anyway, yeah. So the Xenogenesis is one of her basically like humans having sex with aliens, um, stories, um, that does a a discredit, but it's a very, very, um, weird and, and perverse and thought provoking, um, uh, series of books. Uh, So I've, I've really been enjoying, uh, those recently as well as I've sort of been, I think I have, uh, one, one more of them to read before I'm done with the whole series. Cool. Um, I, I have a question for you, uh, kind of ancillary to that, which is like, you've obviously thought through, uh, the use of speculative elements, uh, in your work as a literary fiction writer, uh, and deployed them. Um, like what, I don't want to go off on a rant here about the publishing industry. Do you, (laughs) I guess I'm going to ask a loaded question. I was like, do you share at least some of my frustrations of the fact that like, on the one hand, uh, you know, the publishing industry desperately wants things to cross over, but on the other hand, they're deeply neurotic and ultimately incoherent need for a book to be exactly <laughs> like some other book means that you actually, that, that is a barrier. That means you can't cross things over because it means crossing over means someone has going to have to buy something that they didn't buy the exact analog of a week prior, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, so the, the, the publishing industry is incredibly dumb. Um, yes, and, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I say that from, so I have an interesting dual perspective there. Um, and because I say that both, um, as, uh, as a published author, as a person who has, um, who has sold and, and published, um, two novels, 
um, to a literary publishing house, um, to a relatively prominent literary publishing house, and and sort of gone through their sort of um, weird Byzantine and ultimately, frankly, unsuccessful attempts to sell the thing. I mean, it did fine, but not great. And I kind of um, uh, part of that has to do with I think an, an inbuilt marketing ineptitude that I think crosses the publishing industry, um, where um, they actually have no idea what is what is good or not, or what will be popular or not. They have no mechanism of arriving at any prediction of that in advance. And so they just publish a zillion titles and eventually one or two of them hit and make enough money to keep the whole racket going for another year. I mean, that's the model. And that's also my, my, my criticism of it as not an author, but as, um, a, uh, a manager and uh, a, an MBA, which is that they've got a crackpot business model. And one of their problems is that they have themselves created extreme market segmentation by insisting upon bright genre lines. And, uh, you know, you could imagine why that may have happened sort of in like the, uh, the snobbishness of the mid-century book world. But now, in the sort of contemporary world that we live in, what it's done is it's divided up every potential audience into tiny little buckets of self-identified consumers. And those people have been driven into those buckets, and now the publishing industry freaks out about the fact that they will not uh, leave the pen that they were all corralled in in the first place. And so I don't have a solution to it, but I find it um, tremendously frustrating because um, for every Jeff Vandermeer that you get real, you know, crossover success, you know, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of, you know, really interesting um, genre writers who are not getting, you know, um, reviewed in the New York Times um, or um, pushed uh, in the uh, new literary fiction at the front of the Barnes and Noble or whatever. And then there are many hundreds or thousands of literary writers who have interests in genre um, who uh, either have to tone it down or else just never find a readership among genre readers who just are like, ah, I'm not interested in you know, reading about um, a college professor who falls in love with the girl in his writing workshop. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And so I'm not even going to go into that section of the bookstore. Wow. Okay. Another dynamite answer. And wow, do I agree with all of that. And it actually opens up new vistas of things for me. That, that, That was honestly like one of the best critiques of publishing I've ever heard, if not the best. Um, and like, I, gosh, we could go on about this all day, but like it, it, what kills me, and I think you'll probably agree with this, where all three of us are serious readers. We've all bought a lot of books in our lives. Like nobody, mm-hmm. I, in my, in my experience at least, nobody, nobody buys books the way the publishing industry imagines. Literally no one is sitting there saying, I want to read exactly what I just read. That is well, ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and and let me uh, here. Let me bl- let me blow your mind. I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your mind here. Okay, so oh, yeah. the, the 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 actual locus in our society, the place where the most serious readers go to get their fiction, is the library, the public library. Right? People who really love to read go to the library. And when you go to the library, go to your 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 the nearest branch of your municipal library chain and go into the fiction section 
and they do not divide fiction by genre in the library. They do in the bookstore, right? Because of these crackpot marketing ideas. But if you go to your public library, you will see, you know, um, Isaac Asimov shelved right next to Jane Austen. And, and that is because, and I'm convinced that that is really the only sort of way in the, in the sort of commercial marketplace that, that you can, you can ultimately get readers back into sort of just being free ranging consumers. I mean, there's always going to be some distinction, I think, between, you know, Tight types of fiction, but they're they're just much more porous than than uh, for profit publishers would would have us think. Um, and it just the like I said, the sort of artificial division, including in the actual built geography of your local bookstore. Well, um, you know, it, Roger Zelazny. Ro- I'm sorry? Roger Zel- Do you know Roger Zelazny, the New Age writer, mm-hmm. or the New Age? Mm-hmm. He he used to uh, attribute a great deal of to his success, success to the fact that his last name began with Z, so he was at one end of the shelves. Oh yeah, that actually I think is um, uh, a fairly um, uh, oh, recognized phenomenon, um, and, and uh, in fact, um, I, I can't remember where I read this, but I remember reading at one point, so um, people at the beginning and the end of the alphabet um, do better, but also um, when you look at the way that shelves are laid out, um, people who, by dint of the way that the shelves are laid out, especially in bookstores, end up on the very low shelves. So the ones right by the ground sell more poorly than people who are naturally at eye level. <laughs> you know, unreal. So, I mean, yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, think about it. Like, I mean, I'm uh, I'm in my late thirties, and I'm a pretty fit guy, I like to think. Um, but honestly, like my knees crack when I bend down to look at the bottom shelves in the bookstore, they're on the floor. <laughs> so yeah. I, um, I'm less inclined to look at books down there. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's just one of those weird things about sort of human consumer behavior that I, again, I think that, um, Maybe a little small uh, independent bookstores think really hard about how to display their books, but um, you know big bookstores um, don't. And and certainly when you're talking about algorithm-driven online models, you know it's all about trying to find something similar to the last thing that you bought or consumed. Yeah, well, I gosh, I this I have so much to say about this. I do want to say that, that your basic point about Asimov next to Austin. I mean, what what do we all know about ourselves and other serious readers? What is a serious reader by definition? A serious reader by definition is a curious person, a person driven by curiosity to seek out different kinds of good reads, and that's a minority of people. Those are those, those are the serious readers are, and the publishing industry has a model which conceptualizes people in their least curious possible guys, and that is ridiculous and is one of the many things destroying the industry, I'm sure. But um, gosh, this is probably our longest episode ever. So I yes. <laughs> we could do a whole, Jacob, maybe one day we should have you on to do a whole other episode about publishing because clearly you've thought about this <laughs> in, in incredible depth, which I really appreciate. Um, I want to ask you now though, are there, do you want to talk a little bit more about your novels or plug something else or? Uh, I mean, I don't really, I, I guess I don't really have anything um, to, uh, 
uh, plug right now. Um, follow my Twitter um, at Jake Backpack. Um, I always any like um, short form writing that I'm doing um, gets announced there. Um, I uh, I am working on a book project, but it's at the very, 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 very early stages. So um, I I definitely have nothing to plug there. I'm not going to um, uh, jinx myself by making any predictions about if and when um, I may sell it and it may be published. Um, but uh, I know. I'm, I mean, I'm happy to talk about um, either of my um, my existing novels if there's anything you'd you'd like to know about them. They're both good. You should buy them. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No. Check out check out Jake Jake but Nick Bacharach's work. Uh, maybe not on Amazon. Don't encourage those people. But you know, no, Amazon's fine uh, for this. But yeah. No. I, I'll repeat them. Um, the Ben in the World and. Uh, I have, to, I have to remember the exact title of the other one. The Doorposts of Your House and On Your Gates. Those are his two yes. novels. Check them out. Yes. Uh, and also check out his nonfiction, I should say. Um, do follow him on Twitter. Uh, you know, you're honestly one of my favorite uh, just sort of day-to-day commentators uh, when on both on Twitter and in your nonfiction writing. So, like, check out check out this guy's whole opus, folks. And I hope you like this episode as much as I, I did because this was this was really, really great. Thank you so much, man. Oh, it was, an, it was a real pleasure. I, I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Oh, great. It was. Uh, by the way, in every episode, I recommend a book. And obviously, we have zero time. But Bruce Sterling's Distraction in talking to you, I think you'd really love it. Okay, I've not read that one, so I will I will pick it up. Okay. Awesome. Well, dude, honestly, that was incredible, and we really, really want to have you back on sometime. So, you know, let us know if there are other things you want to talk yes. about. Um, this was phenomenal, and this is a great contribution to Dune Month, so I'm feeling great. Thanks, thanks to both of you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. 